0: Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host, for this Discipleship Series, Gwen McCaslin. And if you are tuning in for the first time, welcome. And there is over a year's worth of treasures in the library of podcasts that we have. And to find all of the ones that would be considered a part of Faith Foundations, you need to look at all the Wednesdays. Um, And so our Monday podcasts are round table discussions of different things from uh, Bible chapters and book studies to um, resources and topics and even interviews where we sit down with with people who are living the life of Christ in different environments, doing different things. And so I would encourage you to tune into those Mondays because they um, they are kind of like treasure chests and that there are just some really rich um, moments in all of those. And then our Fridays are um, old radio archives from about 10-15 years of radio ministry uh, from Circle of Friends Radio uh, with ninety-five nine, And um, we've reworked some of those so that they, instead of being a week of 30 minutes, um, they function as one segment for a podcast. So um, you'll hear voices from all over the years that have sat on at the table with Circle of Friends. Um, And so that's kind of the lay of the land. And so we have just finished up under Faith Foundations, the Wednesday series. um, We have just finished up Old Testament survey. And so we are at the 400 years of silence in between the Old and the New Testament. And I'll be honest with you, I am not sure I have ever sat under a sermon that really talked about this period of time. Um, And so I think I remember growing up that it was just like God went quiet, and then all of a sudden, boom, stars in the sky, Jesus comes, and and then we are into the New Testament and gospel, and we are off and running. And so in doing this, I wanted to kind of honor God's silence, because I really don't think he is silent. I think these years speak very loudly for how God sets up the arrival of his son. Um, I love Hebrews chapter one um, and how it talks about um, Jesus bringing his son. I, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read those passages for you. And we're going to start in Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1, and it says, God, after he'd spoken, Long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, the majesty on high. And so I want to just kind of point out that this verse explains Old and New Testament and how they are hinged together and they are one book. Um, and so that's kind of my heart for this is to tie the Old and the New Testament together for you guys a little bit better because growing up, um, I honestly, like the Old Testament was its thing and the New Testament was its thing. And I didn't understand that they um, they literally, the New Testament grows out of the soil of the Old Testament. It is the the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant and the new covenant that is in Christ's blood. Um, and so the one thing I want you to notice out of Hebrews chapter 1 is that long ago God spoke to the fathers in the prophets and in different ways um, and in different like portions, okay? Okay. The English Standard Version actually says at many times instead of in many portions. Um, And I like that understanding of this word a little bit better um, than what the NASB does with it. So in other words, it would read long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers or our forefathers, the, the saints that have gone before us. By the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Um, And so, what I love about this, and I want to just point out verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, so basically, all of the Old Testament is God speaking to the forefathers, to people, into the lives of mankind through the prophets at many times and in different ways i love that okay because that is the big picture of all of the little interactions where god speaks into mankind now the one thing i want to point out here is that the first thing we see when the bible opens is god's voice in the void creating everything that we see out of nothing by just speaking it into existence Okay, so God's voice has the power to create. Then we see God literally form dirt out of clay, a man, and his breath makes dirt turn into a living soul that is eternal. So if you look at those two things and then realize that all the way through the Old Testament scriptures, God has been speaking to man in many, at many times and in many ways. And he spoke specifically through the prophets. Well, who are the prophets? The prophets are the writers of the Old Testament. So right here in the New Testament, we have them affirming that it is God speaking through the writers of the Old Testament. So I want you to understand that this is where the New Testament validates the authority of the voice of God speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament. Okay, so I went. Did did you hold on to that? Did you catch that? Because this is where you should start getting very excited, um, because the New Testament validates the authority and the voice of God in the Old Testament. Okay, now the next thing I want you to see in this passage with Hebrews is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Glory. You can substitute this definition if you want. It is the revealed essence of who God is. So in other words, it's, it's that moment when God in his fullness is just exposed. In other words, where God just shows who he is. And it's this revealing of the fullness of who God is. And so it's a very, it's a, it's a hard concept, but it's, it's this idea of this moment when it's just revealed. It's like, it's like whatever's been covering or obscuring it is just pulled back and you can Get a glimpse of the fullness of who God is. Okay, that is what it means with glory. And so anytime you see the word glory, the definition I sub in there is it's the revealed essence of God. Okay, so let's read the sentence. He is the radiance of the revealed essence of God. And the exact imprint, the other word that's kind of used here is he is the exact representation of his nature or the exact imprint of God's nature. So, okay, let's make the sense of this, okay? All right, so God speaks everything into existence, literally carves Adam out of the dirt, breathes into him an eternal living soul. Then we see him walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in actual fellowship and community where God speaks and walks with man in the garden. Okay, now some of you old school, you are thinking about that song about in the garden with Jesus. And he walks with me and he talks with me. Um, And I want you to think that way because that is the heart of the Father. That is the heart of God. So, okay, so that's God. And then I want to do a separate podcast on this because it will blow your mind. But if you take and do a survey of every time God speaks throughout the Old Testament, You realize that he is a God that is constantly and consistently speaking into the lives of people, some that don't care, they don't worship, they don't honor him, they don't know him. Some that have chosen to follow his covenant, some that are walking in rebellion to his covenant, even though they know who he is. But what you see throughout the Old Testament is this over and over and over and over and over again, God speaks into the lives of man, but that's not good enough. Okay, so we get to the end of the Old Testament, and Hebrews tells us that God changes his tactic when he sends his very son. So he literally sends the exact representation of himself, he sends a part of the Godhead to live and dwell among these people that he created so that they can experience him in a new way and fully understand who he is. So you want to know why Jesus lives life for three years with 12 men, 24-7? It's so that they can come to understand who he is. And that's why we got the Gospels. Because they were the ones that give us the firsthand account of who Jesus is, because he is the exact representation of the Father. So when we look at Jesus, we see God the Father. That is something that I'll be honest with you, I missed growing up in church. I missed that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. I had them as two separate things like God was distant, and he was cold, and he was judging and harsh. And some of that was because I thought that's what the Old Testament was always about. God was always telling them, get right, or I'm going to punish. You know, get it together, or this enemy's going to come over here, and and he's going to do this to you. And if you've listened to some of the Old Testament surveys, especially the later prophets, you're going to understand that I've come to see that every single warning that God gives his people is a mercy moment where they can hold off his judgment. And then there's some that are to the point where he's like, listen, I'm telling you what's coming. Because you've not listened to me, it's now too late. But here's hope. Here's hope. I'm always going to preserve a remnant. And one day I'm going to undo everything that I'm allowing to happen. Um, And so there's always this love that's so constant for his people. Um, And so even all the way back to Abraham, we see God just sitting there, you know, in his, uh, I think sometimes he shows us his emotions. So we understand that we are wired and built like God, that emotions aren't a bad thing. They are a real thing. Um, and so we see God literally lamenting that he had made man and that he'd made this covenant and Abraham's kind of bartering and going, but God, if I can find so many people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, will you save it? And so it's this beautiful moment where God allows Moses to go back and forth with him and really pull out and highlight God's heart for his people, um, and the mercy that he's so willing to give. And so I want you to understand that, um, literally, God's mercy is so evident in the Old Testament. So the the view that I had as a teenager and, and young adult of God in the Old Testament was really clouded and, and his mercy was really obscured. Um, but to understand that what Hebrews says is that Jesus reflects who God is in his heart towards us. Um, and so the beauty of You know, the Old Testament, he's speaking in many ways and in different times through the prophets and through all kinds of things. And then we have what looks like 400 years of quiet, and then we have him sending his very own son. And so what I'm going to propose to you is that in the next couple podcasts, I'm going to lay out how God sets the stage for his son how he literally changes the world to prepare and get it ready for Jesus. How he takes the Old Testament written in Hebrew and puts it into the most common language of the day, which is Koine Greek, which is what we call the Septuagint. We're going to talk about how. Um, we're just going to talk about how he allows a young man in his twenties, within 13 years, to topple an entire world power in three battles and how that man's ideas of how to unify a territory changed the face of the globe, the known world at that time, by giving a common language, which we call Koine Greek. And so I'm going to pull out some things. And another thing that you're going to hear me do is we're going to go back into Daniel a little bit. And we're going to talk about how years and years and years before we get to this 400 years of silence, Daniel has already been given a vision of exactly what is going to be fulfilled in this time down to crazy details that there's no way he could have known. Such crazy details that scholars have argued hard about the authority, about the accuracy of the timeline of when Daniel was written. God answered that, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in an amazing way. And what I want you to understand is those scholars went, there is no way this was actually written way back then because it had to have been written after all of these events because there's no way Daniel could have known. And you're right, except that God knew what was going to happen. And he gave that to Daniel in a vision very specifically. Um, And if you want to sneak ahead, some of this is in Daniel chapter 7. Some of this is in Daniel 11. But it's, it's a little bit tough to come at it with eyes that haven't studied. And so this would be something that you're probably going to have to do some research and some articles that have been written on it or wait for that podcast because I'm going to attempt to kind of sketch that out for you. Um, Because the one is the statue that um, King Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of, and Daniel's explanation is from the Lord. And it actually talks about four consecutive kingdoms that, um, are going to happen. And then a fifth kingdom that's going to come later. Um, and so it is a beautiful picture of history. Now, the one thing I'm going to tell you right now, spoiler alert, um, is that the Dead Sea Scrolls blew apart every argument that these specific scholars had where they were defying that Daniel could have been written way back when it was supposed to have been written, because we know exactly when those scrolls were placed in there in the Dead Sea Scroll um, caves. Um, We know exactly when that happened. And so in order for a book of Daniel to have been included, it had to have existed before the date we know scrolls were put in there. Um, And so what that does is that blew their argument out of the water because All of those Dead Sea Scrolls were put in there far before the events prophesied actually happened. And it gives us a for sure moment that we know Daniel was written before this date. And I'll explain that a little bit more when I get to really expand on um this this these years for you guys we're also going to talk about the apocrypha and why certain books are not included in the canon and you're going to notice if you've grown up catholic or have ever looked at a catholic bible that there are apocrypha books um first example you will see a first and second maccabees and i grew up just um I I grew up where we didn't talk about the importance of the Maccabean revolt at all. And so I had no idea the significance of it. Um, And I'm just going to put another teaser out there for you guys. Do some research on the Maccabean revolt, because what you have is a devout God following man with several sons who, because he knows who God is, he takes a stand. Um, and so I think it's got a beautiful message for us today um, in the fact that his sons, in consecutive order, over the next couple years, you have the, the Maccabees and you have the Maccabean revolt. And within three years, they managed to take back Jerusalem and take back the temple and reestablish worship for the Jews. And so it's truly an amazing story. So much so that we actually see in the gospels, Jesus honors Hanukkah, which is the... Um, the Jewish festival that comes out of that three-year war to take back the temple and Jerusalem. And so, uh, yeah, anyway, so it's just, there's some beautiful things I'm going to actually bring out a bit more and explain a little bit more in depth. But I want you guys to understand that this period of time is not quiet. Um, It is full. It is jam-packed, full of things that set the stage for Jesus to come. Um, and so that's what I want you guys to understand. And I want you to understand that the Old Testament is so, uh, it is so connected to the New Testament that you cannot read one without the other. You can't. It, it's very much so. I want you guys to understand that the New Testament only makes sense with the Old Testament as its context because there's so much dovetailing and so much. Of the Old Testament is being explained by the New Testament writers to the church to the people that are following Jesus, um, and so the predominant scriptures that the New Church had was the Old Testament, and I don't think I always realized that growing up, and I don't know that a lot of the church does either. That that Old Testament canon was their scriptures and then added to that what the apostles were writing, the gospels that were coming out, that there was those firsthand accounts of the life of Christ and everything they had seen and heard. Um and then you have beautiful passages coming out of the gospels where, you know, um where a writer will say, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, you couldn't contain it in all the books. You know, and so this idea that they really they really agonized over what they were including um, because of the purpose for each of the Gospels. Um, and so, you know, and then it filters on through to each of the, the writers of the rest of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Um, they were writing letters to specific people addressing specific struggles within the church that were coming from their culture. You know, so one of the things that Paul and Peter deal with is the Hellenistic Jews. Well, where do the Hellenistic Jews come from? Well, they come from the Hellenization process from Alexander the Great, where he brought Greek ideals to the stage, to the world stage. And within a short period of time, the entire known world all of a sudden became bilingual. And so that brought with it all of these Thought, the Greek thought to things. And so literally it Hellenized. And there was a whole group of Jewish scholars that bought into that. Um, And so buying into that, you had a division within the Jewish scholars, which eventually leads to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which is Jesus' day and age. And so I think you can feel this, can't you? That like so much of what happens in this 400 years is the context for. The gospels, the New Testament, for the book of Acts, for the epistle letters, for understanding, you know, where all of these um, influences that the church is battling to keep the gospel pure, um, where all those outside influences come from. Um, and so kind of this, this period of time sets the stage for the New Testament. Um, and so I really want to try to make sure I'm doing that justice. Um Okay, I think I've got about five minutes for today, and I'm like, oh, I want to include stuff, but I don't. You know, it's this teaser type thing. But the biggest thing I want you guys to understand um, is that I am not a professor. And so um, this is just stuff that in me searching out, like, oh, my goodness, what happened? Um, These are just things that honestly have just lit a fire in me, Um, things that I just find are so... It's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing how God set the stage for Jesus coming, for sending his own son. Um, And we'll talk about Herod. We'll talk about um, that he is a king who made himself the king of the Jews and how um, the Jews didn't like this. And they didn't like it because he was not of the line of David. Um, And so to have a king that wasn't of the line of David, he was a usurper. He was not meant to have that role. And so um, that leads to Herod's hypersensitivity to the prophecies that come around Jesus's birth, which is the context for why he sends out an edict to kill all children, all male kids, two and under, you know, which is sets up why Jesus and Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. And so any case, there is just so, such rich, uh, context in these 400 years, and so we will go through them. Um, there's a really interesting story with a guy named Epiphanes that we'll talk about, um, and so and and we'll also talk about some biblical prophecy around him um, back from from the Book of Daniel. And so there's a lot of key historical pieces, people and places that we will talk about. But the biggest picture I want you guys to understand is. Um, I want to go back and just connect for a little bit, and I'll do this more in another episode. But what we have just walked through at the end of the Old Testament is the the promised land that Joshua marched the nation of Israel into and the land that they were told to literally go in and occupy, take it over. Um, they didn't fully do that. And so they left enemy In the land. And so we have all of these extra people within the land that they fought. But then, because of their disobedience, the Lord raises up different people. Like in the story of Jonah, we have the Syrians. Um, And so, there's a lot of time period where the nation of Israel is in the land, but they're not the governor of the land. And you got to remember that the height of Israel is under Solomon. They have the glory days of Solomon, where he builds this massive, beautiful, embellished temple to the Lord. The palaces, everything is covered in gold. Um, you know, they're at the height of peace. There is diplomacy happening from every nation under the sun, because they are all coming to marvel at the wisdom God has given Solomon. And so he is amassing wealth like crazy left and right from all these different places, um, they are in their heyday as a nation. Um, arts are flourishing because the nation's at peace. There's nobody that stands a chance and they all know it. And so they have all sought peace or um, they've sought diplomatic relations. And so they've sent a daughter to become one of his wives or his concubines. You know, they've done things to kind of build their connections to Solomon. Um, and so that is the golden age of... Of Israel, and then right after Solomon, we have it divided into the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. Remember, the Southern Kingdom is Judah, the Northern Kingdom is Israel. Um, the Assyrians rise up and they take out uh, the Northern Kingdom in about 722. Now, when they do that, it it was prophesied beforehand, and it's followed through. It was fulfilled. They were told that unless they repented and got rid of all of the worship of all of the other gods in the land that he would remove their kingdom and they would never they would cease to exist and so that has been fulfilled even to today Um, and so they have never had a king from that point on from those tribes from the tribes of Israel now Judah survived a bit longer about 150 years more um, before they were conquered by Babylon and so you know, we ended the Old Testament with them actually kicked out of their land. Um, so they weren't even allowed in it with other, uh, another country ruling it. They were kicked out of it for 70 years. And then we have the decree that was sent from the Persian uh, emperor. And then they're allowed to come back home and they're allowed to build their temple again that's been destroyed. And remember, it's, it's not going to be as good as Solomon's temple right? And so they are in the awareness that they are what they're building is less than. And so the people become disheartened. And for about 10 years, they stop building the temple until Haggai is sent a message from God to tell the rulers, hey, you're living in these great houses. What happened to mine? Um, and so basically God confronts them on the fact that they're living in nicer places and his house is in ruins and not finished. And so, um, basically, like Haggai's job of the entire book of Haggai or Haggai, however you want to say it, is to literally like motivate the people, get your act together, let's finish the temple. Um, and so, the temple's finished. Um, the temple's finished in about five sixteen BC, um, and so that's about the end. So we we close the Old Testament with a temple. Okay, and sacrifices are up and running again. But remember, Solomon's temple is the one that they had before. And so... You know, what they were fun was functional, but it wasn't anywhere near what they had had before. And actually to such an extent that here's another of those context things comes along Herod the Great and he is into building projects. And so one of the things he does is he takes that very humble temple and he starts adding to it. And so literally what we have at the time of Christ is we have Herod's temple. And so understand that that... We first, the first temple is Solomon's temple in all of its glory. It was designed by David, who was hard after God. And so the plans and everything were David's. And then his son, Solomon, is the one that built. Um, and God provided all of the resources for it to be extravagant, truly extravagant. The second temple was very humble and means until Herod comes along. And remember, he is not a direct descendant of the Jews, um, but he wants to be that king of the Jews. Um, and so there's a little bit more that we'll talk about in play, culturally speaking, too, because there was a lot of fighting over the high priest position. in in the nation at the time. And so you had just a lot of key pivotal things at the point. Um, And the other thing I want to kind of mention is that in Jesus' day and age, that high priest and the Sanhedrin Ran a lot like the mafia, um, and I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, and so they they would you know do hits on people and all kinds of things would happen. So um, and I think if you've watched The Chosen, you would have seen just pieces of that happening. Um, in any case, uh, I I want to kind of throw one more thing out here. Um, and so you have Herod at that point building a new temple. Uh, or not a new temple, but dolling up the temple so that the temple we see in the New Testament is actually Herod's temple is what it's called. But it is that that temple remodeled that they built at the end of the Old Testament. Okay, so that is all for today. I am leaving you with a bunch of teasers, and unfortunately, you're going to have to wait a week. <laughs> for the next episode, but we're going to go back and I'm going to draw out and kind of explain a lot of what I shared today, um, in depth in over the next couple of podcasts. And we're just going to have some fun. Um, but the biggest thing I want you guys to realize is that 400 years of silence, God is at work even though he's not speaking to his people for a time, you can literally just realize that this is God's dramatic pause where he's behind the scenes, moving things around in his providence. And so the thing I want you to understand is we sit in another season of that waiting for certain things to happen on the world stage, waiting for prophecy to be fulfilled. And God is just as work just as much at work, in the background, through his providence, establishing exactly what he wants to have happen, happen. And so I think a lot of times we have felt very like the world is out of control and all of those things. And I would just tell you, dear friends, take heart. Take heart because God has never set aside his providence, his power, his sovereignty, or his control. And so everything that looks out of control answers to his ultimate plan. And so whatever we see, whether it is the big armies attacking others and, and different things like that, remember that in the Old Testament, they saw the same thing. And God rose ba- rose up Babylon to take out Assyria, um, to rescue the nation of Israel from Assyria's grip, the Syrian grip. Um, God does the same thing. Um, and so everything that we see on a world stage, we need to understand that God's providence is like a golden thread stringing history together. Um, I'll leave you with that and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to open the word podcast at gmail.com.